Amen. Well, good morning, King's Chapel. Uh, Pastor Chris mentioned we, we miss you guys very much. I know many of us talked on the phone with either me or one of the other pastors, but uh, we hope to get to see you real soon. Even though you get to see me now, I, as you know, can't see you. Uh, we begin our new series this morning in the book of Revelation. So go there with me. We are going to study the first three chapters together, uh, but mainly look at... Um, Chapters 2 and 3, uh, the seven letters uh, written by Jesus through the Apostle John to the seven churches. So that's where we'll be. It will take us eight weeks. Uh, today will be an introduction, and then we'll look at each one of the churches, uh, each one of the letters written to the seven churches. So if you have your Bible, I hope you do, turn with me to Revelations chapter 1, the inspired, infallible, authoritative word of God. I am going to read all of chapter 1. Um, and then we will have an introduction and look at a couple of things in the chapter and uh, pray that God would um, bless our time of not only reading the word, but teaching of the word. Revelation chapter 1, reading from the ESV English Standard Version. Hear now the word of God. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come. And from the seven spirits who are, who are before the throne. And from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead and the ruler of kings on earth. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom. Priest to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who are, even those who pierced him. And all tribes of the earth will wail on account of him, even so. Amen. I am, verse 8, I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and is to come, the Almighty. I, John, verse 9, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus was on an island called Patmos. On account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day. And I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying. Write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches. To Ephesus, to Smyrna, to Pergamum, to Thyatira, to Sardis and to Philadelphia and to Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. On turning, I, I saw seven golden lampstands, and, and in the midst of the lampstand, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with golden sash around his chest. The hair of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace, and his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand, he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last, and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forever. I have the keys of death and Hades. Write, therefore, the things that you have seen, those that are, and those that are to take place after this. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. May God add a blessing to the reading of his holy word this morning. So let us begin as we study, as we look to Revelation with the author. The author of the book of Revelation is the Apostle John. Chapter 1, verse 9, tells us that he was in an island called Patmos, an account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. Patmos was one of the, uh, of a, was of a group, was in a group of a small island southwest of the coast of Asia. It was about 10 miles long and only about 6 miles wide. It, it was not a resort. <laughs> 
uh, with swimming pools and beautiful beaches. Actually, it was a, a bare, rocky, volcanic island with hills rising to about a thousand feet. And John had been sent there because he had courageously proclaimed the gospel by the Roman authorities who continued to persecute the church. I read this week that Patmos was an island used to banish uh, political offenders. And the gospel is a threat. I thought about that this morning. The gospel is a threat to political power. Just look at those who are in authority, uh, thought and did to Jesus in the four gospel accounts. Whether it was the religious leaders, whether it was the kings, whether it was governors. When, when the people are freed by the gospel, they are no longer governed or ruled and controlled by fear. And fears we know, particularly in these days in which we live in, uh, living in, uh, can be very, very controlling. But when the gospel frees the heart, when, when fears are overruled by love, 1 John 4, there is no fear in love, but fear, but perfect love casts out fear. Fear-driven power is lost. And in love, not fear, John is proclaiming the gospel, and because he was a threat to the Roman uh, emperor and his people, his army, his, his uh, political power, he was removed to the island of Patmos. Verse 1, notice what it says, the revelation of Jesus Christ. Very important, that is the Greek word, uh, the Greek word for revelation is where we get our English word apocalypse. Simply means to uncover or unveil or to make known. The book of Revelation then is when, is, 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 is when we see this Holy Spirit just drawing back or pulling back the curtain, uncovering for us so that we could see the beauty, the glory, the honor of Jesus Christ exalted in heaven and the fulfillment of God's purposes in the world. It is a book which God reveals his plans and his purposes to the church. It's a revelation. It's an unveiling. Interesting to know when Daniel in the Old Testament writes his prophecy, he is instructed to shut up the words, to close it. But John here is given the opposite instruction. In fact, Revelation chapter 22 verse 10 says, seal not the sayings of the prophecy of this book. Well, since Christ came and since he died, since he rose again, and since he ascended, since the Holy Spirit has come, we know that the last days have been ushered in and God now is showing us what is to take place. The hidden purposes have now been revealed and John is told to write it down and to make it known. There are hundreds and hundreds of Old Testament citations and allusions in this book. And we see this apocalyptic literature in Revelation with, with incredible imageries, really just a, to a glimpse into the supernatural world, the battle between uh, what's going on behind the scenes. It's a unique, uh, because it's apocalyptic in literature, it has these imagery, but it's also unique because it it's also has prophecies, not just apocalyptic, not just end times, not just um, a display of this incredible imagery of end things, but this prophecy, it's actually letters too uh, that we, we will look at. Um, very common in the Old Testament, very common in, in antiquity, not only in Old Testament times and New Testament, but in other writings uh, that were non-canonical. In other words, not scripture. We find this apocalyptic literature, this, this, this end times, this, this imagery uh, in Ezekiel and Zechariah, Isaiah, Daniel. We even see it in, in places in the New Testament like Mark 13, Matthew 24, 2 Thessalonians 2, 3. And what you find in this apocalyptic literature, this genre of imagery and end times, um, we see from 200 BC to 100 AD, groups of Christians, uh, non-Christian, Jewish and non-Christians, writing this kind of literature. And I don't want to get too much into the type of literature. We're not going to really, well, we're not going past chapter 3. But let me just say this as we, just as an introduction. Uh, like any other book of the Bible... Revelation, like any other book of the Bible, in order to properly understand what God is saying to us now, we must first know what he was saying through the original writer and the original recipients. Right? We, we, if we're going to follow good hermeneutical skills, in other words, how to understand the Bible, how to interpret the Bible, we have to know what God was saying. You, 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 if, we had, if we do that, we would do away with many of the ridiculous claims that have been declared through this book from generation to generation, right? Ever since Christ, right? You read the newspaper, and then you interpret what all the symbols and mysterious imageries in the Revelation, the strange beasts are all about. 
And then what you do is you rip it completely out of context and you bring it right to the immediate context. And that's a problem. And just for the record, so far as of today, those who have claimed in the past that things in this book have come to fruition, that the end has come, has gotten it wrong. Every single one of them. That should tell us something, right? Thousands of years with multiples of people have been mistaken. And that's being generous because some of them have done it maliciously to gain financial prosperity from people. Again, control through fear. That's not what the book of Revelation is all about. We have to be very careful as we look at this book. Which brings me to the purpose of Revelation. And the purpose is not for you and I to sit and comb through with a newspaper... Um, and try to figure out all that's going to happen exactly when it happens. But it is to encourage believers. Revelation was written to encourage believers who face suffering and death. And to do so in light of Christ's work, his death, his resurrection, his ascension, and his victory over sin, Satan, and evil. Eight times in the book of Revelation, Jesus is referred to as the Lamb. The Lamb. The metaphor reveals so much about the purpose and the nature of Christ and the book of Revelation. Dr. Daniel Aiken, he's the president of Southeastern Seminary, and his commentary, a very good commentary called Christ-Centered Exposition, has, I think, one of the best descriptions, of the best themes uh, of the book of Revelation. This is what he writes, I quote. I believe the theme of the book, the book of Revelation, could be described as the majesty and glory of the warrior lamb, King Jesus, who is coming again to rule and reign forever. That's a good theme right there. And you know what? This book of Revelation, I was talking with the other pastors, a little bit like the book of Hebrews we just went through. And now, we decided to go through this book way before this pandemic has happened. Um, so if there's any questions about that, it's had nothing to do with it. Um, but it's sort of like the book of Hebrews in, in the sense that Revelation was written, again, to overcome, excuse me, to, to encourage believers to overcome obstacles and, and to be persistent and consistently holding on to their faith, knowing that God is in control of all of history and Christ will return He will judge the earth and he will reward those who remain faithful to him. We see this this, this description in this great book, this description, this declaration of the majesty and glory of the warrior lamb, King Jesus, who is coming again to reign and to rule forever. We need to see. We need to see who God is. We need to be convinced that Jesus is reigning and ruling as the risen king in all of life. In all of life. And particularly in hard times, in difficult times, in persecution, in in severe persecution. This is a word to the churches then and today. We need to know that God is in control. That he's on his throne. That he is worshipped by myriads of angels. We need to know and we need to see how God will crush evil, demolish all those who oppose him and set up his kingdom so that you and I can enjoy him today. You and I could trust him today. That you and I can have peace in him today by living in light of the reality of the way history will will be brought to its consummation in a climatic demonstration of his glory in salvation and judgment. God wants us to know his mercy and justice and live worshipfully in faith and by faith. And even though Satan and, and his emissaries and his, and, and his army wage war against saints on earth, we need to endure suffering, opposition, persecution and death because Christ is victorious. Only one. He's the only one worthy of our worship. Only one worthy of our trust and allegiance. The book of Revelation is exactly what they needed then. The book of Revelation is exactly what we need now. And the book of Revelation is exactly what churches and the people of God will need in the future. Let the truth of this book remove fear. Let the truth of this book not bring fear, but remove fear and anxiety. And let the God of peace and assurance bring us to the place of trust and reliance and worship. 
You also know it was. You also need to know. I think before we jump into this, the book was written in the in the beginning or the middle of the 90s A.D. during the reign and persecution of Roman Emperor Domitian. His reign of terror upon the church from Rome uh, was actually worse than Nero, from what I've read this week. He increased the penalty of of refusing to worship him as God and Lord. Not only increased the penalty, but he expanded that uh, rule throughout his kingdom. And again, like the readers of, of Hebrews, we just went through that book. He's concerned, the writer of John is concerned that we would be encouraged as we read this book, have hope in Christ, to remain faithful in the midst of persecution, suffering, and hardship. So that's sort of an introduction. Um, there's probably a lot more we could talk about, but I won't. And as we get into the letter, I just want to show you three things. Um, we'll land on the first two, and then we'll wrap up on the last one. But we'll look at the introduction and blessing. Number one. Number two, greeting and doxology. Number two. Number three, vision and glory. And I'm, I'm hoping that when we're done with chapter one, we see Christ at least get a, a better a better and a bigger glimpse of who he is uh, and how important that is for us as we worship and follow and love him. So that's where we're at. Introduction and blessing. So look with me at verse one. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him, that's Jesus, to show to his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant, John. Okay? The book of Revelation, this book is a revelation, excuse me, of Jesus. And notice the chain on how this book was uncovered and unveiled. It was God who gave the revelation to Jesus, who made it known by sending his angel to his servant, John, who then wrote it down. For servants, God's servant, that would be them and us, all eternity, servants of God and Christ. So we know that this book comes from God himself. And that claim that John is making excludes the possibility that this prophecy is of some human speculation or some sort of sci-fi or mere religious reflection, right? It's not because John had a bad cheeseburger on the island, right? It came from God. God didn't just give it to anyone. He gave it to Jesus, his son, who gave it to his angel, who revealed it to the beloved disciple. We know that from the gospel, according to John, uh, John himself. He receives this revelation of Jesus, who, by the way, is the object and the content of this revelation. It is from Jesus, but it is also about Jesus, okay? It is from Jesus, but it is also about Jesus. In fact, uh, Revelation chapter 1, uh, verse 1, verse 2, and verse 5, the only times in the book we see that double name, Jesus Christ, Jesus the Messiah. And, and, and John is pointing at the beginning of this book, in the introduction, he, he's signaling to us that Jesus is the Christ, he's the Messiah, he's not only God in the flesh, but he has, uh, and Lord, but he's the Savior of the world, he's the Christ, the Savior of the world. He is the one who who came down from glory, who took on flesh, appeared in human form, to take upon himself the requirements necessary to redeem and to restore God's covenant people. It's not about, it's not primarily about history. It's not primarily about the future, although it says a lot about it. It's not primarily about the church or about you and me, although it's part, it's in there as well. And neither is it about this world and all those teachings may be in there. It's not even about heaven and hell, although that speaks of it well as well. The book of Revelation, as I said, and you've, I'm going to pound this home today. The book of Revelation is supremely of and about Jesus Christ. Chapter 1, verse 1. Then notice it says, the phrase, things that must soon take place. I mentioned it earlier. And what Revelation does, and right in the introduction... Uh, and that, that, that phrase occurs like seven times in the book. It emphasizes imminence and expectancy. Right? Re- remember what we've learned in Hebrews and, and what we've been said over and over here, what the scripture teaches us. The end time, when he talks about the end time, when he's talking about uh, whether it's uh, James chapter 5 verse 9, the judge stands at the door ready to come, or 1 John 2 18, it is the last hour. Hebrews chapter 1 verse 2, these are the last days. When the Bible talks about the end time, the last days standing at the door, what he's talking about is the death, resurrection, ascension of Christ until the coming of Christ. And in between those two times is considered the last days. So we are to live with expectancy 
since the resurrection of the Lord and, and ascension of the Lord Jesus Christ. Alan Johnson, in his commentary, writes this. In eschatology, which is end times, in eschatology and apocalyptic literature, the future is always viewed as imminent. The church in every age has always lived with the expectancy of the consummation of all things in its own day. Imminent describes an event that is possible any day, impossible no day, end quote. The revelation given to God given to Jesus by God through the angel to John, what must soon take place. Verse 2, who bore witness, that's John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. John the apostle bearing witness to the word of God. He is the one who is speaking, who sees, speaks, and even suffered for the gospel. He, he's given testimony. He's not only claiming, chapter 1, verse 1, is not only claiming that he is writing the truth of what he saw, but he's also saying that the revelation, the unveiling of God is actually the word of God. Not simply John's narration, but a testimony of Jesus Christ given by Jesus to John. It is, it is the word of God. Bore witness of the word. Verse three, blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy. Blessed are those who hear Blessed are those who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. Here's John on the island of Patmos for proclaiming the gospel, telling us, blessed are those who proclaim, read, hear, and follow the gospel. John obviously did not learn his lesson from being exiled. He thought it was still a blessing to proclaim the book of Revelation rather than avoid suffering that you could get for the gospel. The word blessed, same word used in Matthew 5 in the Beatitudes, this divine blessedness, this inner joy, knowing that you are right with God, sins have been forgiven. Now God promises he will pour out this inner joy upon those who by faith, look, look at the text, who read and hear and keep what is written in this book. That's a blessing. There, there, are, there are many of them. Um, I believe there are seven of them in the book. It begins and ends, actually, Revelations with this blessing. Notice with me, too, it says, blessed is the one. You might have a translation, blessed is he. Both of those are singular. Blessed is the one who reads, that's continuous, the book. And I think the reason that is, is that people were given this book, the apostle was given this book to the churches for them to read publicly. Someone would stand up and read this book of Revelation to the congregation. Now remember, it's not that you can't study it alone and read it alone, but this was given to public exhortation, public reading of the word. And you got to remember, in those days, no one had Bibles like we have, right? We got tablets, we got phones, uh, we got Bibles with dust all over them, undust them and start reading them, right? So, they didn't even have a portion of scripture. So he says, to the one who's reading it, the ones who hear it, and the ones who follow it. Okay, and that, that's what we have here. The revelation was not just simply given to, to just read publicly, and it was to impart this information that needs to be told about the future, uh, about what's going on and the future, but to help God's people in the present must therefore read and hear and keep the words of this prophecy, of this scripture, of this holy word. That's reminiscent of Jesus' word in Luke chapter 11. Jesus said this, Blessed are those who hear the word of God and keep it. That, what, that which we hear, we must heed. What we believe, we must live. And everyone who listens and obeys will receive the spiritual blessing that's been promised. Let, let me And let me just say this. When you and I read this book, and, and, and public reading of it or personal reading of it, it, when we read the book of Revelation, if we do it properly, looking to the glory, majesty, and dominion of Christ, you will see him, you will hear from him. You will find yourself armed and fortified against the enemy, against dark times, against hardship and difficulties in your life. When we see the exalted Christ lifted up, it has a way of just 
drawing us into his presence and the peace of God comes into our hearts. Verse 3, end of verse 3, for the time is near. Karios, the season, the epic is eminent. So you can see the, you can see this in its introduction. You can see the, the purpose of Revelation is not to excite our imagination. It's not for us to just go down this path of wild speculation. The book of Revelation is to inspire and to motivate us to faithfulness and obedience. The nearness of the Lord's return is meant to challenge us to live faithful lives. And we through, we do that through the grace of God, through the mercy and grace of God. You see the introduction here. Notice also now the greeting. Verse 4. John to the seven churches that are in Asia. Here we see who the recipients are of this letter. John was writing to the seven churches in Asia. Now look down with me at verse 9. And look what it says. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patience endurance that is in Jesus was on the island called Patmos. And on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus, I was in the spirit on the Lord's day, Sunday. And I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, write what you see in a book, send it to the seven churches, Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum. Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. Write this to them. Now, I, we got a couple of maps up. I just want to show you. And you can see the... Uh, I'm, not, I'm looking at my iPad. I'm going to look over here at the screen. It's not there. Um, the seven congregations... Well, you can see from our map... Um, let, 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 let me move it to the next one. Whoop. Can we go back one, uh, Mike? And what you see is the, the Congress, seven congregations form this oval trajectory allowing for other churches to be reached. Like these seven churches were not the only churches in the region or in Asia. And the order that they were written in this, in this oval trajectory was probably uh, likely because it was, it was due to travel routes. And the bearer of the letter could then go from church to church to church during the Roman, you know, the Roman road went that way. Um, there may be some logistic or, or uh, dis- distributive uh, centers in the area. We're not really sure, but certainly you could see as the letter could be addressed, it could be passed along systematically through the providence of Asia, which is our modern day Turkey. Okay, and, and as you see these seven churches, I want you to know something, that these are real churches, with real people, with real struggles, who had both strength and weaknesses. And therefore, the revelation was written to assure these churches in Asia, not only of the final eschatological, the end time salvation, the work of salvation, the end of the age, but also the judgment of the evil world powers they were dealing with and the issues that they were dealing with at that present time. This book had immediate relevance to the first century. We worship and love the same God who acts in historical judgment and will also act in final eschatological end time judgment for the final redemptive purpose to further his glory. And I want you to know, too, that the number seven, you could see the seven churches. The the number seven plays a, a huge part in the structure of the book. Not only there are seven churches, there's seven seals, seven trumpets, seven bowls, seven lampstands, on, on, and on, and on. The number seven symbolizes completeness, perfection, fullness. And therefore, not only were they real church with real people, but we can be very confident that Jesus is appealing to all Christian believers, all churches in all places and all ages. You can see the island of Patmos there to the left. And you can see Crete, and that's Asia. And those are the seven churches. And John sends his greeting now. Chapter 1, verse 4. Grace to you in peace. Grace to you in peace, right? A typical uh, 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 Greek greeting. Grace, meaning God's unmerited favor. Peace, a Hebrew, a common Hebrew meaning, uh, greeting, which means shalom. God's blessing, a wholeness and well-being. And, and the order, I think, is, is important. Because peace with God and the peace of God pour out of the amazing grace of God. 
And sometimes I wonder if we are lacking the peace of God. And we're Christians. We, we know God's peace. Uh, we, we have peace with him. Uh, Romans chapter 5 verse 1. Because of what Christ has done. We have reconciling relationship now. Where there was once enmity. There's now peace. We have the peace of God dwelling within us. I get that. But I'm wondering if we... If we're dealing with, especially in the particular situations we're in now with this COVID-19 and, and the stress and the fear and, and all that's going on in our lives. I wonder if we don't have the peace of God, if the reason is we're not resting in the grace of God. That we're not recognizing God's unmerited favor towards sinners who deserve separation, damnation. But God in his love and mercy did not leave us in our sin, but rescued us from what we deserve by pouring it out on Jesus. And when you put that and think of that and press in and preach the gospel to yourself, then the peace will come. Grace and peace. The surpassing grace, Paul writes in 2 Corinthians. Or the grace that has appeared bringing salvation for all people, Paul writes to Titus in chapter 2. Grace and and peace. And who's that from? Where do these blessings flow? Our triune God. Look at the text. God the Father. Him who is and who was and who is to come. We only find this title in Revelation. I think it's an echo of, of Exodus 3.14 where when God comes to Moses in the burning bush says, go tell Pharaoh, let my people go so they can worship me. And Moses says, well, if I go, who should I say sent me? God says, I am who I am. He's the eternal God, the God of the present, the past, and the future. Note the Greek present tense is first, that the God of the future is in control of the present. Even when things look chaotic and things are uncertain in our lives, God is. God is. Family, rest in God's eternality. His present, past, and future is in his hands. He can help us. He can comfort us. He can empower us, anyone in any age, in any situation, to rest in him, to stand firm in the faith. In the faith. That should change I think that, that that speaks to our heart, that changes us, or should change the way we see, we, see, we deal, we, we approach our perspective on burdens and anxieties and fears, knowing the truth that God's control over all of history. God is in control over all history. He is who is and who was and who is to come. Look at the rest of the verse. And from the seven spirits who are before his thrones. Some may say these are angels. I don't think so. Again, seven signifies the fullness of the Holy Spirit. In the person and the work of the Spirit. Demonstrated as we read in Zechariah chapter 4. We encourage you to read that this week. Where, uh, uh, the Revelation is leaning a lot on, on Zechariah and Daniel chapter 7. In Zechariah chapter 4 verse 2. We, where in the holy place of the temple. Zechariah sees a, a golden lampstand with seven lights. Each having seven spouts and wicks. And, and the abundance of oil symbolizes the Holy Spirit. The work of the Holy Spirit. As God declares in Zechariah 4 6. Not by my might, by power, but by my spirit. Says the Lord Almighty. And where are they before the throne? The Holy Spirit who energizes, equips the people, the church for service to the Spirit who proceeds from the very throne of God. Right? Think about that. We, God's people who are indwelt by the Holy Spirit, who are made suitable by the power of the Spirit for every task, for every service, for every challenge, is the God who lives us, is the God who what? Is before the throne of Almighty God. God the Spirit before the throne lives in us. I mean, just think about that. The one who is in heaven is the one who is in us. God the Father's preeminence, God the Spirit's presence, and now God's the Son's provision. Look at verse 5. And from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of kings on earth. Again, it's about the majesty and power and dominion and glory of the Lamb King Jesus. And so John places him last for, for, for prominence. 
He is the faithful witness. He's the reliable, credible, trustworthy testifier. In his obedient life, Jesus Christ reveals the character of God as God himself. He is the word who made flesh and now dwells dwells among us. He is, Hebrews 1, the final and full revelation of God. John chapter 14, Jesus says, you've seen me, you've seen the Father. He is the faithful witness. Now, word witness is where we get our word martyr. Jesus was a witness not only in his life, but also in his death. What a comfort it would be to, to those who are under persecution and to those who are facing death to know that we stand with the one who suffered unto death and conquered death. Jesus Christ is the ultimate, final, and faithful witness because he died and because, look what it says, he's the firstborn from the dead. Jesus did what no one has ever done rose from the dead, never ever to die again. Unlike Lazarus and others in scriptures who have been brought out, brought back from the dead, they will die again, but not Jesus. He is the firstborn, which means he has the highest honor. He is exalted. And I, and I think, as I read this scripture, I'm thinking about the exaltation of Christ being, being the firstborn from the dead. I couldn't help but think of, of how the fact is well, the reality is, we see this in 1 Corinthians 15, uh, we see in Romans 6, that if we are united with him in his death, we too will rise from the dead. That because we are in him, and he is the firstborn and the first fruits, Roman of uh, 1 Corinthians 15, we too have this promise that we will be united with him in his resurrection. Jesus himself says in Revelation 1.18, I am he who lives... And was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. Of the keys of the Hades and of death. So here we see the Son's faithful witness, his forever resurrection, and his predominant rule. Look at it says, and the ruler of kings on earth. Another reoccurring thing of Revelation, reoccurring theme of Revelations. So no matter how powerful, as John's writing this letter, Domitian is the emperor of Rome. Or any other ruler, both seen and unseen. They will answer to Jesus. Every ruler, every leader, every world power, every world power will answer to Jesus. Will give an account to King Jesus. He is over all things. Nothing is over him. He is over all things. And yeah, I'm sure in John's day as he's exiled... It looked like, outwardly, Rome was ruled with, without any competition. Human history, over and over, centuries upon centuries, will be seen as nations against nations. Yet, we know from this book, from God's word, behind the chaotic events in history, the followers of Christ recognize that Jesus Christ, who chose the way of obedience and humiliation, is exalted is a ruler and reigning at God's right hand, ruling and reigning over the earth. He is the firstborn from the dead, and therefore he has absolute authority over the living and the dead. That is true now. That is true then. That is true now. And it will be made perfectly clear when he comes back again. He rules sovereignly over the kings of the earth. And now look at this beautiful doxology. Second part of verse 5. To him. Just a declaration of praise. Doxology. To him. Who loves us. And has freed us from our sins. By his blood. The son's faithful witness. Forever resurrection. Predominant rule. And his perfect redemption. Notice the Greek present tense. To him who loves. Continually present. Always present. He loves us continually. Now and forever. His love never changes. His love never ends. To him who loves us and has freed us. Interesting in the aorist tense. Freed us once and for all. Done complete. He loves us forever and he freed us forever. Now if you have another translation. Maybe King James or New King James. You have the word washed in there. And he has not freed us but he has washed us. Um, at the end there of, of verse 6, he, to him who loves us and has washed us from our sins by his blood. Although that's, that's true, the scripture tells us that. Um, that's not a good translation of the word. Uh, the word that's there is the word freed. 
Um, they, they sound the same in the Greek, but um, later on in translations, and, and uh, it, got, it got put in there. But in the original, we believe it was freed. And that's great because sin is described in Scripture in the Bible as slavery. We need freedom. We were in bondage, and, and we need freedom. We need to be freed from sin's penalty. And Jesus' love for his people led him down the road and led him down his life, who, who led him down to the place of Calvary where he laid down his life and set us free from our sins, paying the penalty by his blood. And the blood of Jesus frees us from our sins. From our sins. It frees us in the sense that his death, his atoning work on the cross, cancels our obligation to pay the penalty for our sins to the Father. It was paid for on Jesus when he died as our atonement. Those who sin, the Bible says, die. Death is separation. And Jesus' death on the cross brings us into reconciliation with him. We In, in Scripture, when we talk about Jesus' death, we, a lot of times you'll hear at King's Chapel and other churches too, we take the collective understanding of what the, of the death of Jesus means and we talk about it as the penal substitutionary atonement. And the word penal means and points to the fact that he paid the penalty for our sins. The word substitutionary means he died in our place as our substitute. He bore the wrath. He took our place and died on the cross. And the word atonement means that his death reconciled us, sinful man, sinful women, to a holy God. Someone once said this. He has freed us from sin's penalty. That's justification. He is freeing us from sin's power. That is sanctification. He will free us from sin's presence. That is glorification. Look at verse 6 too. And what did he do? He made us a kingdom. Priest who is God and Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Blood freed sinners now flood the kingdom of God. That Jesus is king and rules over his kingdom. No longer are we, no longer are we under the power, under the devotion to worldly powers, to the power of Satan and the, and the heir of the ruler of this age or anyone else. Jesus made us his kingdom, his people. The apostle John takes again here uh, another Old Testament passage, alludes to Exodus 19, where, where Moses combines the concept of kingdom and priest. Seen as Mount Zion, uh, excuse me, seen as Mount Sinai. God tells the Israelites, although the whole earth is mine, you, God's people, will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. All believers are now priests of God. We learn that in Hebrews. 1 Peter 2.5 uses the same language. We reign with him. We have access with him. We serve him. As priests, we mediate the knowledge of God to others. We proclaim the good news on behalf of, of Christ. Be reconciled to God. That's our message. And we announced that Jesus Christ was put forward by the Father as a sacrifice, a penal substitutionary sacrifice who bore our sins, took our wrath, and is to be received by faith. And those who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. We'll look forward to this day of the coming of Christ. As priests, we have access. We learn in Hebrews. Immediate access where we offer sacrifices of thanksgiving and worship to God. Such a glorious salvation, such a work of our Savior and Lord can only result in praise, in worship and adoration. Look at the rest of the verse. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. He made us a kingdom, priest. To him be glory. That's what God reveals himself and all the work of Jesus and our response is, is to worship him is to praise him. Glory and dominion belong to Jesus. He loves us. He freed us from our sins by his blood. He makes us a kingdom and a priest. And those who love him are freed by him. Give him glory. So family, let me ask you this question. I asked myself this question this week. Are we living like we belong to the kingdom of Jesus? Do you and I live like we belong to that kingdom? Does our life demonstrate that dominion belongs to Jesus alone? Do we identify ourselves as priests and worship God with thanksgiving and, and be quick and ready to share the good news of the gospel so that other people may know him? 
Does our life broadcast that glory belongs to Jesus? Is our ultimate satisfaction and treasure Jesus Christ? John concludes his greeting in doxology with a brief word. A word which Paul told Silas, uh, excuse me, Titus, the blessed hope and appearing of the glory of the great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, Titus 2.13. Paul writes it that way to Titus, and look what John says in chapter 1, verse 7. Behold, behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him. Even those who pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. Having discussed this work of redemption and salvation, John now draws onto the day of the consummation of Christ, when he will turn, return in triumph and bring history to a close. It's the first time we hear about it. We're going to hear much more. Well, we're not going to, but if you read the book, you'll see it at the end of Revelation, the coming of Jesus. John looks into the future here, just gives us a glimpse before he gets into this letter to the returning of Christ coming on the clouds, which he himself, Jesus himself said he would do in Matthew 24. And he says, behold, look. That word means to, to look up, to listen up, to stand up, to sit up. He is coming. That's indicative. It's assertion. It, it's sure. It's a fact. It's going to happen. Behold, he is coming. Look, watch. It's going to happen. And look, he's, he's coming in the clouds. Again, a picture of Daniel 7.13, where Daniel portrays the Messiah, the Son Receiving an everlasting kingdom. Coming in the clouds. Daniel chapter 7. I think it's 10 through 14. That's what we see here. And if you remember. When we went through Mark a long time ago. If you look at Mark chapter 14. The religious leaders. The Sanhedrin. The, the body of religious leaders in, in, in that day. Uh, the high priest of the Sanhedrin came to Jesus. And he said are you the Christ? Are you the Messiah? Are you the anointed one? The son of the blessed, the son of God, the son of the same nature of God. And Jesus said to him, I am everlasting, eternal, I am. And you will see the son of man sitting at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. And what did the high priest do? What they were told they should never do, they ripped their garments And said, what further witness do we need? Do you have heard his blasphemy deserving death? They knew exactly what Jesus was talking about. He's referring to Daniel 7 and the coming of the Son of Man in all glory, dominion, and power to establish an eternal kingdom. We see that here. Behold, he's coming with the clouds, verse 7. And every eye will see him. And even those who pierced him and all the tribes of the earth will wail. Again, Zechariah uh, chapter 12 is something you want to read. We have this, this prophecy uh, in Zechariah where every eye will see him. Those who pierce him, all the tribes of the earth will wail on him. Zechariah chapter 12 verse 10. And what, what, what John is doing is he, he's, he's, he's taking this idea of the suffering Messiah, this, this redeemer side by side by this conquering ruling king. And they who pierced him will see him. Some people think, well, it could, it could be the Romans who, who crucified him, the Jewish people. Uh, we're not really sure. I, I think to some degree, when he comes back, it says every eye will see him. I think there's a, there's a sense in which all will recognize, all will see his pierce. All will be, will, will, those who don't know him will recognize what he has done. I think that's, that's very possible. All the nations of the earth, both Jews and Gentiles, will wail, will weep because of him. And, and I think at the end of, of, of chapter, excuse me, the end of verse 7, they're wailing and they're weeping because they're recognizing that this pierced one, this mighty one, this king, this son of God, that God himself is coming back. And they have rejected him. They've hated him. They wanted nothing to do with him. And they'll be wailing because it'll be too late. Judgment will come. Even so, amen. It's sealed, it's settled. Verse 8, I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord. Again, he says, uh, who is and who was and who is to come. God is, is unquestionably able to fill and to do and to work out his divine purposes. Alpha and the Omega, beginning the first and the last a letter in the Greek alphabet. is The beginning and is at the end, emphasizing his omniscience. 
who is and was and is to come. His eternality, his, his sovereign control. The Almighty is, is, is God's supremacy. And one thing I think it's important to note is that although God the Father is called Alpha and the Omega here, uh, it is referred to as Christ as well in chapter 22, verse 13. Clearly showing the deity and the names that are used for Yahweh in the Old Testament is now applied to Christ. Here in the end of chapter, uh, of the end of this greeting in doxology, we have the Father verifying everything that is said, all that will take place. Nothing will take place that he is not allowed, and everything he said will happen. It is true. It is certain. It is, it is authoritative, reliable, and totally trustworthy. What more can we ask? How much more assurance could we have going through hard times, them and us now, with the knowledge of knowing that Jesus will set everything right. The church's oppressors, those who want to have power and authority over us, will be judged and Christ will be seen as the reigning, ruling king. Introduction and blessings, greeting and doxology. And let's just spend a few minutes looking at vision and glory. We already looked at verses 9 through 11. On the Lord's day, in the spirit, John, verse 12, turns to see the voice that was speaking to me. And on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstand, one like a son of man. Again, Daniel. An allusion to Daniel. We know from verse 20 of chapter 1 that the seven golden lampstands are the seven churches in Asia uh, to whom this letter is addressed. We also need to see this vision in light again of Zechariah chapter 4 with the seven lampstands. He's he's seeing this vision of this rebuilding of this temple and this renewal and God's presence among his people. And and, and now John takes that vision in Zechariah and and brings it to fulfillment. Fulfillment and says it's Jesus. He's not building a temple, but he is what? Dwelling among his church. The church where the gates of hell will not prevail. And this, this church, these believers are the living stones. First Peter chapter two. In other words, Zechariah's lampstand vision in Zechariah chapter four, symbolizing the presence of God in the temple, pointed to the seven lampstands in Revelation, which symbolizes Christ's presence In the seven churches, no matter what they face, no matter what's going on, it's showing that Jesus is in control. He's protecting and providing with his all-encompassing love and reassuring power. He's in the midst of the landstands. He is clothed with a long robe and with golden sash around his chest. Been several ways to understand that. First, uh, some commentators think it has to do with his royalty. Golden sash, long robe, his royalty. Some point to Daniel and say, no, it's a vision of his glorious messenger. And some think, and I, I lean this way. I think it's a reference to Christ's high priestly role. His, his, his atonement, his intercession on our behalf as he goes before the presence of the Father to obtain forgiveness and salvation for all those who believe on him. He is clothed with a long robe. Verse 14, the hairs of his head were white like white wool, like snow. Again, another allusion to John, excuse me, Daniel 7. A description of, of, of God, Yahweh, now emphasizing Jesus' deity. Some say his gray hair is, is a representation of the crown of splendor or wisdom. It's pointing to John, again, Daniel 7 about his deity. His eyes were like a flame of fire. A flame of fire, Christ's eyes, his all-searching omniscience. Nothing escapes his view. Nothing escapes his eyes. He will judge the living and the dead. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet, verse 15, were like burnished bronze refined in a furnace. His permanent, powerful strength, wherever the Lamb King plants his feet, He will stand and it will be unshakable, immovable. He will reign and rule over his kingdom. His kingdom is uncontestable. No no matter of fluctuation, no matter of evil, no matter of kingdoms that are raised up or fall down. He will reign and his kingdom will not be opposed. 
his hair, his eyes, his feet, and now his voice. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. Have you ever been to a waterfall? I've been to Niagara Falls. And, and it just, it's just awesome to see this giant water plummeting over a cliff. And it's, and it's breathless. And as you hear the roaring sound of this waterfall, everything else seems to be just brought out of your mind. You can't even hear anything. John says the voice of Christ is striking, mesmerizing, gripping, all-consuming, a penetrating crescendo, echoing from his majesty and sovereignty, like the waves crashing against Patmos, the island. Speaks with power. Verse 16, in his right hand he held seven stars. Again, we learn from verse 20, these are the angels to the churches. Some believe they're true angelic beings or just messengers or the, or the leaders of the church. Either way, Jesus is showing his care and his concern and his right hand means authority, honor, possession, and protection. From his right hand, he held seven stars and from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, the sharpest weapon in the Roman arsenal. Coming from Jesus' mouth symbolically represents Christ's spoken word of power and of force. His judgment, or Hebrews chapter 4 verse 12, we learn the word is sharper than any two-edged sword. Is able to discern the thoughts and intentions of the heart. At his return, the Christ will come and overthrow the lawless one with his breath, with his word. One commentator, Kistemaker, says this. Jesus fights his enemies, not with material weapons, but with his sword. The battle is not flesh and blood, but against spiritual forces of darkness, Ephesians 6. In warfare, this word executes judgments and destroys the work of the evil one. And look at his face. It was like the shining in full, the sun shining in full strength. John looks and gazes upon Christ, and the only thing he could think of, the only way he could attempt to, 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 to tell us what he sees, it says, look directly into the sun in the middle of the day. This dazzling, exalted glory, this blazing splendor, like sun shining in your face, it can't be done. No wonder the next verse, verse 17 says, when I saw him, what I do? I fell at his feet as though dead. This ain't some hustler, some shyster, some false Bible teacher waving a $500,000 jacket, $50,000 jacket, and everybody falls slain in the spirit. This is Jesus showing up. King Jesus in his splendor, in his glory. John's brain overloads. Huge difference. Between being slain in the spirit, which isn't even true. This was a revelation to John. Overwhelming, like a light of a jolt of lightning. He is overwhelmed. He sees Jesus partially, at least, at least to, to the glory that he's able to see without being undone. He just completely shuts down in the presence of indescribable majesty. The hair, the eyes, the tongue, the feet, the brilliant, glorious sun shining in the majesty of Christ. And then Jesus lays his right hand on me, John says, saying, fear not, and the first and the last, the living one. I died and behold, I live forevermore and I have the keys of death and Hades. And family, let me end with this. That is the Jesus we worship. That is the Jesus who we must listen to. That is the Jesus who will come again. And that is the Jesus who is writing seven letters to the churches. I hope you see him in a special light today. I hope you see him in his glorious splendor, in, in, the, in your mind side, just seeing his greatness and recognizing this ain't our home. Christ is coming back. He will reign and he will rule. And he will put everything opposed to him in its place. And he will reign and rule in righteousness. He will bring judgment. He will bring salvation. This world is not our home. Trust in Jesus. Love Jesus. Run to Jesus. Let us pray. Father... Thank you for this revelation that you have given to Jesus through the angel to John. 
And now we see Jesus speaking. Father, we rest in this truth and we recognize that you, O oh God, are sovereign and you are good. And that Jesus is coming back. He will establish his kingdom where there will be renewal, that where there will be redemption, Lord, where all things will be made right. Father, help us to keep our eyes on you. Let us not walk in fear, but in faith. Let us not shrink back, but walk in love. And Father, let us declare to the world that Jesus Christ is Lord to your glory. Help us to worship him in Jesus' name. Amen.